Chronicles chapter 15. As you are turning there, let me uh, just give you sort of a reminder as we're moving forward here. We have been considering David's life now uh, in the book of 1 Chronicles. He is sort of the focus of this particular book. The, the nation of Israel, they've returned from this captivity. People are trying to reestablish the nation. And uh, Ezra, who we believe is the writer, is sort of going back to the glory years of when God established the nation under the leadership of David there. And now we are giving, we're, we've been given into all of these uh, kind of accounts of things that were taking place. There's two events that we're going to come across today that we've looked at during the last month or last six weeks that I just want to remind you of those things. One was when David became the king of all of Israel, his decision to move the capital to Jerusalem, that that's where he would rule the nation from. So his decision to go back to Jerusalem and rule from there, make that his home. The second one was his decision that, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and that the Ark, which symbolized the presence of God, would be front and center in this nation. That was very different um, from when Saul was king. So those two factors, keep those in mind as we move forward. You also may recall when we looked at chapter 13, uh, as David was trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem, that things didn't work out so well. started off as a great day, but by the end of the day, uh, one of the servants was actually struck down by God and killed. And so what started as this great day and what was progressing on as a fantastic experience with the Lord ended in a very, uh, very sad, very tragic way. Okay, so... Keep that in mind. Now let me read on verse uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 15. It said, Now David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it there. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it. Now in chapter 13, when David made the attempt to bring the ark up, he used the method of the Philistines, and the method of the Philistines was to throw it on a cart, and they would just transport the ark of God, this big, heavy, rectangular box, they would transport that on a cart. Well, that worked for the Philistines, but this was not what God had intended, and the way in which he uh, instructed. And sadly, we saw that the event ended when Uzzah, reaches out his hand because the oxen stumble and the ark is going to fall off of this cart. You can't have the ark of God fall off a cart. And there's Uzzah, in all sincerity, I think, reaching out his hand just to steady the ark. But unfortunately, the scripture was very clear that he was not to touch the ark. And he was struck down dead. And then as you read the end of chapter 13, you may recall that David essentially just gave up. And he just left the ark there. He, he kind of looks at the whole circumstance. A great day. Everything was wonderful. And it comes crashing down in a moment, and David just says, that's it, I'm done, just leave it. And they just leave the ark there. They find a priest house, this guy by the name of Obed-Edom, and they move it into this man's living room. And there it sits in his living room. And I, I just wonder, like, what did he do with his kids? You know what I mean? Nobody go in the living room. People die that go in there. Or, you know, sends his mother-in-law in. Could you go into the living room? You know, or, or something like that. That's terrible. That's horrible. Uh, so, but David, David gives up. Uh, this effort. Now we know from 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and, and also 2 Samuel 6 that about three months goes by that the ark stays at this man's house. And during that period of three months, his household is greatly blessed, the scripture says. During that three-month period of time, I'm going to suggest to you that something is going on in David's heart. 
And you look at this, and David says, you know what, it's time. Let, let's give it another go. And that's what uh, we are introduced to in 1 Chronicles 15, David's second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now, you might look at that, and you might think that David hears that Obed-Edom is getting blessed and is kind of thinking, hey, that's my blessing. What does he get the blessing for? It's supposed to be at our house. We're supposed to be. Let's go get it so we can get our blessing. Obed-Edom doesn't deserve to have the blessing. We deserve to have it. But the more I think about who David is, the Scripture doesn't necessarily say, so we could all be right and all be wrong at the same time, um, but the more I think about who David is and what David was like, I don't think that's his motivation for going down to get it so that he could be, but he knew that the nation would be blessed or that Obed-Edom would be blessed. That's why he wanted it, so that all of the nation would be blessed. I think rather something else is going on here, that he's not surprised that Obed-Edom is blessed, but that the reason he wants to bring up the ark at this particular time is because he sought the Lord and he realized the error of his ways. You see, during that three-month period of time, David, we learned from our passage today, he learned the right way for the ark to be brought up to Jerusalem. And how did he learn the right way? He learned it by studying the word. Now my inclination is to believe that while David was seeking the Lord during that three-month period of time, that he was probably saying things like, Lord, I don't understand what went wrong. What went wrong? That's hard to say. Lord, we tried to honor you. We tried to bless you, and we, and we failed. I don't get it, Lord. Or maybe even the honest question, God, why would you let this happen? I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, think as a follower of Christ, we feel that we can't be completely open and honest with God, and that we have to sort of filter our prayers and put on a good face because, well, God is holy and God is so worthy, I can't really be honest with him and let him know. I remember when I came out of college, I went to Rider University. Thank you. I went over to Rider University. And, you know, my parents spent, you know, $40,000. Back then, that was for four years. Now that's for one year, I think. You know, but I, my parents spent all this money that I would go and I would get trained and all this sort of stuff. And I came out of Rider as a teacher, school teacher, and I couldn't get a job. And so, you know, I'm married and we have an apartment and all this stuff. Got to pay the bills somehow. So I'm just picking up jobs, you know. And yeah, I'll, sure, I'll do that. Can you pay me? Yeah, I'll do that job for you. And just odd jobs, whatever it may be. And I started working for this construction guy. And one particular day, I'm on the side of the road digging ditches, literally. And my mom always used to say, if you don't go to school, you'll be a ditch digger. You know, and, and here I am digging ditches and I have a degree. And I, was, I remember just thinking, God, this is... This stinks. I don't like this. This isn't good. God, I'm mad at you. Well, uh, you know, you go back to, you start teaching in September. I didn't have a job. So now it was October. A month, a month and a half had gone by. An opportunity developed where I interviewed for a job for the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization down in the uh, Trenton area there. Uh, and I was going to be their uh, athletic director of the CYO. This is my dream job. <laughs> I get to play with balls all day and I get to tell people about God. This would be great you know, kind of thing. And, and I remember convincing myself, God, you're so, you're so good. You know, you, you knew, you caused me to wait and all this. I would have made a mistake and I wouldn't have had this great job. Thank you, God, for being so, so good and faithful. I'm sorry I said those things about you, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So I go to the interview. The interview's great. Everything works out. The guy's like, we love you. You're the best ever. Uh, we'll call you, though, with our official decision, okay? I said, all right, I'll be waiting for your call. Just get my office ready. Uh, and the call comes a day or so later and he says, uh, we decided to hire somebody else. And now I'm like, God, now you're playing with me. 
You know what I mean? You're like pulling me this way, that way, this way, that way, Lord. I don't like it. And I remember having an honest conversation with the Lord. And I was about four or five years in the Lord at that time. It was the first time that I was completely and totally honest with God in prayer. And saying, God, I don't like this. And I'm not sure I really like you anymore, God. Because of how you're playing around with me. Or whatever. Now, I followed that up with, Lord, I know that you're good. I, I know that you're righteous. Because I believe the scripture teaches that. But I don't feel that way right now. And rather than fake it and pretend, I'm just going to tell you how I really feel. And then God began to work and God began to minister and I'm here today. And there you have it. You know, There's a lot more to the story, but you get the idea. But I think it's okay to be honest with God and let Him know you don't understand or you don't like or you're not comfortable with this. And God, where are you? Lord, you need to change my heart and these sorts of things. So God began to do that work, I think, in David's heart. And here's David. Can you imagine coming away from that day three months earlier? That walk back from Obed-Edom's house, as far as they got to Jerusalem, how devastated he must have been. That what was set out to be this great, wonderful day ended in such a tragic way with people dying. David says in chapter 13, verse 12, he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? You know, when I hear that, when I, when I read between the lines of that phrase there, I hear a man that is utterly hopeless. How could I ever do it? Hopeless. I read about it. I see a man in there that is complete, feels that he is completely unworthy to do the work of God. I see a guy there, honestly, that has given up. I'm done. Just leave it there. I'll go back and sort of live my life. And have you ever been there? Have you been to that place in your walk with God where you decided, I'm giving up? I'm done. I'm never going to pray again. You hear me, God? I'm never going to pray again, you know, and you say a prayer to the Lord in that, and, and you, you kind of make this commitment that you're done walking with him, but then God just does a stirring. And I think of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said, I'm done preaching, I'm, forget it, there's no good in me preaching. And then it said, the message is burned within my bones, it says, and it had to come out. And I think that David, and, and I did some math here, because as you know, I'm very smart, and I did some math, I think David took two weeks off in his relationship with God where he refused to seek him. And here's how I come to that. Because as we read this particular passage, David understands how the ark is to be brought up. And when David purposes again, we are going to bring the ark up and we're going to do it the right way, he quotes Exodus chapter 25. Now Exodus 25, it teaches us that the ark, uh, on the side of the ark, you're to put these poles in these rings that are on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them and the poles shall remain in it. That that's the way that it is to be transported. Now, most of us, we have our quiet times every day, right? We read a chapter a day or something. Well, there's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. There's 25 chapters to come to this place in the book of Exodus. So that's 75 chapters, 75 days. So this was 90 days, three months. Therefore, he took 15 days off in his walk with God, and then he read a chapter a day. And one day while having his Bible study, please don't write that down as, you know, as like, really? That's how it works? I don't know if that's it. But one day while David is having his normal quiet time with God and that's how God speaks to us and then some of us we want to flip and point and you know God speak to me I got it you know or whatever it may be but God oftentimes just in our normal daily reading our word with him God will just speak and it'll impress something upon our hearts and so here David he comes across chapter 25 and I think God like flooded into his life he said David the circumstance is not hopeless you are not completely unworthy you need not give up. You just need to do it the right way, David. And here's the right way. David sees that and he says, I know what we're going to do. 
I simply need to obey the way that God has previously directed. This reminds me of Revelation chapter 2. When Jesus is speaking to those seven churches in Revelation, one of those particular churches, I think it's the church of Ephesus, but I don't remember right now, but one of those particular churches, he, he says to them, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This idea of remembering, man, we really wanted to bring that ark up. But something went wrong. I know what I did wrong. I put it on a cart like the Philistines do. I didn't take the time to seek the Lord and His will and His word. And we messed up as a result. And he repents of that. And then he returns. Let's go back to Obed-Edom's house. It's a good work that we set out to do. And let's bring it up. It's as if God is saying, I know you blew it. But let's go. Acknowledge your sin. Dust yourself off. And let's get moving forward again. And that's exactly what David does in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is a chapter about restoration. So maybe you're like a David. You wanted to do this great work for God in one way or another. You made this commitment to God. God, I'm going to serve you in this way. God, I'm going to keep myself from this particular stumbling block of sin that's been in my life. God, I'm going to do this. And you set off to do it, and it ends in a failure. And you blow it. Now the temptation will be to say, that's it, I'm done. I give up. But the Scripture teaches us that we're not to give up in those instances, but rather we are to remember, to repent, and to return. You know, there's two words that are very similar. The feelings are certainly exactly the same. And they are the words conviction and condemnation. Both, if you've ever been convicted by something, you feel crummy. You feel like a bum. You feel like a loser. You can't believe you did that. You feel horrible. You know, you got the flies, butterflies, and all that sort of stuff. And similarly, if you've ever done something and you're feeling a condemnation, you feel crummy, you feel horrible, you got the, the bugs and all. It's all the same. The, both feelings stink. And you hate coming under conviction or condemnation, but there's a big difference in the result of those two. Because condemnation always will drive you away from God. This is when you'll hear things like, who do you think you are? You want to come back and you want to pray? You think you can just show up on a Sunday morning and everything is okay? Don't you remember what your Friday night was like? And you think that you can just sneak in there and put a happy face on? How dare you? Well, that's condemnation. And the source of condemnation is the devil. Now, conviction, the source of conviction is God's Holy Spirit. And it, like I said, it's just as crummy, but the end result is quite different. Rather than saying, how dare you, you have no right to come in, you, should, you shouldn't even think about praying and so on and so forth, God will never accept you. Rather than hearing that, you're hearing, you are crummy, but I love you still. And I'm willing to wash you if you'll just ask for my cleansing. I'm willing to forgive you. See the difference? And here, David, same crummy feeling, but he is feeling a conviction. And so he returns to the place from where he had fallen and he starts the work again. And they gather up the ark and they bring it. Now if you look at verse 1, David, one of the biggest changes here, I think from chapter 13, is David takes charge. I remember once we were playing in the uh, Nativity Bowl and I had a team and I was trying to be a Christian on this team. And I realized it's a big mistake to try to play sports and be a Christian. You just got to let it all out, you know, and, and, and take over. I'm just teasing. And so we're playing in this game, and everyone's trying to be nice, and everybody gets the same number of passes because everyone wants to go home happy. And I realized this isn't working. I said, give me the ball. You know, and I took the ball, and I said, we're going to throw it down. We're going to do it. We're gonna do it. And, and I sort of, I'm just taking charge. And I don't know how Christian I was anymore at that time, but we won. All right? And that's all that matters. All right, so anyway, David here takes charge. First thing he does, look at verse 1. It said, he prepared a place for the ark of God. 
David's paying attention to detail. Nothing is going to be left over. And they're not going to bring this ark all the way back to Jerusalem and wonder where they're going to put it. You know, and suddenly, somehow, kind of a mistake comes. They know exactly where it's going to go when they get there. They prepare a place for the ark. Number two, David says in verse two that unequivocally the ark is to be carried by the Levites. Nobody else, no carts, no well-meaning people, nothing. If you're not a Levite, then step off. You're not able to carry this particular thing here. This is the way it's going to be. And why is this the way it's going to be? Because David looked into the Word. Look at verse 2. It said, because for the Lord had chosen them, them being the Levites. And so with all of Israel gathered at Jerusalem, they begin the march. Look at verse 4 where it picks up. It says, now David gathered together the sons of Aaron, the Levites, of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, with 120 of his brothers, the sons of Merari, Esaiah the chief, with 220 of his brothers, and of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, with 130 of his brothers. Let's stop there for a second. You may recall during our study of chapters 1 through 8, we were doing all those genealogies. One of the genealogy we came across was of the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes is the tribe of Levi. If you just flip back to chapter 6 for one quick second. Oh no, back to the genealogies. We're going back there. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Those three men, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, they formed the priestly division of the nation of Israel. Each one of those clans, so all of the sons of Kohath, they had certain responsibilities. The sons of Gershon had certain responsibilities, or Shom. And then the sons of Merari, they had certain responsibilities. So here we are introduced to uh, three men that are going to come from those clans. One Gershonite, one Merarite, if that's a word, and one Kohathite. Okay, now if you also still back in chapter 6, look at verse 2. It says, now the sons of Kohath are Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Keep those in mind as we, we move on to those in a moment. Because as you look to verse 8, excuse me, uh, yeah, verse 8, after those first three guys, Uriel, Asiah, and Joel, now you're introduced to a fellow who is from the sons of Elizaphan. Well, who's this Elizaphan? Is he a Kohathite, I should say? Is he a Merorite? Is he a Gershonite? Is he just something different altogether? Well, as you see, Elizaphan's son, or great-grandson, really, Shemaiah, he's one of these men. He brings 200 people. Then there's a fellow by the name of Hebron, whose name, of the sons of Hebron, whose name is Eliel. He brings 80 people. And then there's a guy by the name of Uziel, or from the line of Uziel, whose name is Aminadab. Now, if you remember what we read in chapter 6, verse 2, you remember the names Hebron and Uziel. They are sons of Kohath, two of his four sons. So who's Elizaphan? Well, we don't have any information on him in 1 Chronicles, but we do read about Elizaphan in Numbers chapter 3. And in Numbers chapter 3, what we learn is that Elizaphan is a grandson of Kohath. So he too is a Kohathite. So you have these six men, four of which are Kohathites, two of which, one comes from the Merorites, which one comes from the Gershonites, and they are going to be responsible for bringing this ark, along with, it totals 870 other men, they're going to be responsible for bringing this ark the, about five miles from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. In addition to those men, you'll notice in verse 11 and 12, 
you're also introduced to two priests. So it says, then David summoned the priests, whose names were Zadok and Abiathar. And then it goes on and it lists the names of the Levites we just read, Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. Now notice David gathers, so this is eight men, representing 870 men. And he says to these eight men, he says, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levite. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. One of the first things that David did was he prepared a place for the ark. Now what David is doing, he is preparing the people for the ark. The word that David uses there for consecrate, it's a Hebrew word because we're in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, kadesh. And it could mean a couple of different things, and I think it's helpful to hear both of the meanings. One is to devote something to something. The second meaning is to set something apart for special use. So these men here, they're about to bear the ark of God upon their shoulders, and they're going to transport it to the resting place of Jerusalem. Now remember, the last time someone tried to do that, somebody ended up dead, struck down dead. So do you think these men are taking this command to consecrate themselves seriously? You know that they are. It is a very high calling and privilege to serve God. And I think sometimes in the church, we sort of make this mistake, I'll take anybody. Man, we just need somebody to wipe runny noses. I'll take anybody. You know, this sort of thing. And we kind of lower our standards, if you will. And they should just be happy they're getting me to serve back there or something like that. But the truth is, it is a high calling and a privilege to serve God in any way. So whether you're the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or you're a member of the worship team or the tech team or you're a small group leader or simply you are a person that bears the name of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. It is a high privilege and a high calling to bear that name. The Scripture says that we serve a holy God. And the Scripture also commands that since God is holy, that His servant should be holy. In Leviticus 11, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You know, as I speak to uh, believers and unbelievers about this idea, one of the things I've come to realize is that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what it means to be holy. So some people, they might say that being holy has to do with how you dress and the type of clothes that you wear or won't wear. Some people think it has to do with the words that you use. So they'll pray prayers like, Father, be thou benevolent to this thine good people. And things like that. That's holiness because we pray a certain way. Some equate holiness to those things that can and cannot be done. So you've probably heard the phrase, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. Um, you know, this idea, that's holiness. The things you can and that you cannot do. Some p people look for a holy glow. You know, is that little yellow halo, you know, kind of just shining above, above that particular person's head, well then that person must be holy. Well, I would say this, all of those things, maybe not the halo thing, but all of those things may be associated with holiness, but they're not necessarily what defines holiness. Another word that the New Testament would use interchangeably here is the word sanctification. And there's two aspects of sanctification 
that take place in the life of the believer. One of them is sort of that work that God does in a person's heart. It's a person, they've come to Christ, they've, they've looked to the cross, they recognize that it was their sin that put Christ on that cross, and that willingly, Christ went there, and obediently, he went there to the cross to die for their sins. And they received that. Well, the scripture says that God does a work within them, that they've been born anew and afresh, and they've been sanctified. They've been set free from the penalty of their sin, and they've been washed, and they've been cleansed. That's sanctification. That's sort of what God does in a person's life. The scripture also teaches that in addition to what God does in a person's life, there are things that a person can do in their own life as well to promote an aspect of holiness in their lives. Not something fake, but a, a converting work that God is doing in them. So the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Peter said something very similar. He said, as Jesus who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So the admonition of Scripture is very clear that as a follower of Christ, the expectation is that we are going to be holy. Now again, though, what does that mean? What is holiness or what is the act of being holy? Well, I would suggest to you this morning that it involves choices that we make. Holiness is a conscious decision of the will. It's a choice to be set apart, or to use the First Chronicles word, it's a choice to be consecrated unto God. Now, as you look in the New Testament and in other places, there are two ways in which we consecrate ourselves. One is we set ourselves apart from certain things, and the other is that we set ourselves apart to certain things. So almost like a, a positive and a negative. We keep ourselves from, we set ourselves unto. And I want to take a moment and I want to look at these here. Number one, 1 Corinthians 7.1 having to do with setting apart from. The Apostle Paul says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The idea of cleansing ourselves from every defilement. And this involves taking into consideration the effect our decisions will have on our walk with Christ. A person that is seeking to be set apart from the world is regularly asking themselves questions so that they can formulate the choice that they're going to make, the decision they're going to make. They'll ask themselves things like, what effect is this going to have on my walk with Jesus? Will this help me or will it hurt me in my desire to know God and make Him known to other people? The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, he says that all things are permissible in my walk, but all things are not necessarily profitable in my walk. I think that's one of the most important things I learned in my walk with Christ, is that I make decisions as to the effect it's going to have on my walk with Christ. And so we make decisions about the relationships that we're going to pursue and have. We make decisions about the counsel that we're going to seek and take heed to. We make decisions about the television shows that we're going to watch or the books that we're going to read. And the reason why we take all those things into account in our decision-making process is because we know that those things can rub off and they can have the effect of leading us away from God. Now, I want to make a note here. I think that there are a lot of Christians that make the mistake of forcing their choices on other people. And I think that's a big mistake. 
when we can uh, force our convictions on others. You see, I don't watch that particular show, so you shouldn't watch that show. Or, for instance, this. You know, I realize, you know what, sitting around for four hours a night watching TV isn't really good for me. You know, there's plenty of other things that I can be doing, my family I can invest to, books I could be reading, places I could be going. So sitting around for four hours a night is probably not a good idea. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I, I take this personal pledge. I'm not going to watch TV that much. Okay. Then I'm weak and my fingers, you know, they just grasp that remote control. I, and I wanted to, but the thumb, it moves and it turns the TV on and it's on. And now I'm too weak. And you know what? I, I really want to get this thing under control, but I can't. And so I make the, the bold step and I decide, that's it. I'm cutting cable out. I'm not going to have cable in my house. This way I can't turn the TV on and nothing to watch. And I'll get this thing under control. And so that's sort of how God brought you to the place of the conviction you're not going to have cable or TV at your particular house. You see how God kind of moved you there? The problem is what a lot of Christians will then do is they'll look at you or you'll look at another person and you'll say, I can't believe you have TV and cable in your house. Aren't you spiritual like I am? If God spoke to my heart in this way, then he must want to speak to your heart in that way as well. And then we put a trip on other people that they have to do it your particular way. Well, that's a mistake. Let God work on people the way that God wants to work on people. Let him develop uh, their convictions the same way he worked on yours. Now, certainly I have to give the caveat. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about things the Scripture is very, very clear on. So, you know, the person that says to you, well, I understand what you think, but I think it's okay that I sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I think it's okay that we do these sorts of things. I think it's okay that we get drunk you know, as long as not every day, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, but occasionally it's all right to unwind or what I think that's okay. Well, the scripture speaks to those issues. But there are other issues where it, it's kind of out there, all things are permissible, but not necessarily profitable. And so we ask ourselves good questions. Lord, what would you have me to do in this instance? What effect is this going to have on my walk? So that's the first way I think that we would pursue holiness. It's by separating ourselves from certain things. But the second way is that we set ourselves apart to or for certain things as well. That is, we pursue holiness by separating ourselves uh, unto certain things. 2 Timothy 2, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So just like the person that's seeking to be set apart from that which defiles, they're going to take things into account as they make their choices, so too is the person that is looking to set themselves apart for God. So in their decision-making, they're going to consider things like, how can I represent God well in this circumstance? Or how would Jesus respond? You know, we, we wear the bands, what would Jesus do? Well, that's a valid question to take into all of our consideration as we're moving about in life. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus respond in kind? Would Jesus curse that lady out that just cut me off in the street? You know, would Jesus do this? Would Jesus do We ask ourselves that question, valuable question. So in our constant communication with God, people like this are going to pray prayers like, Lord, what would you have me to do and to say? Lord, I want to bring honor and glory to your name. Would you direct my actions so that that might happen? And in the same way in your house, I'm sure all of us do, you have those special dishes and glasses and all that sort of stuff. You know, you have the chewed on cup that you give the kids every night for dinner because he probably chewed on it, so he deserves that cup <laughs> or whatever. But you're never going to share that with the neighbor that's coming over for the fancy meal. 
You know, you have the china, you have the nice things, the things that have been set apart for holy use, so to speak. And the follower of Christ, the Scripture says, is to set their lives apart. Let me paraphrase for you what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is saying, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And because of that, I will glorify God with my body. And so David instructs these priests to prepare themselves to bear the ark. Additionally, we're going to see in verse 16, David instructs a whole bunch of people to come alongside as musicians. These are worship leaders that come alongside, and they're going to gather and, and accompany the procession which leads the people into worship. Look at verse 15, excuse me, 16. It said, Now David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed He-Man, the son of Joel. So you know they're serious because they're getting He-Man, the master of the universe, involved. Um, some of you college students don't know who that is probably. That's okay. It was high-quality television in our day. But anyway, they... Uh, they gather this guy, He-Man. He's the son of Joel. Remember, Joel was one of the eight men selected to carry the ark and, and the chiefs there. So they bring in He-Man. Verse 17, continuing there, they also bring in He-Man's brother, Asaph. And that's one of Joel's other children. Um, he's also selected. And of his brothers, it says, Asaph, the son of Berechiah. Continuing in verse 17, it says, Now of the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan the son of Cushaiah, and with them their brothers of the second order, Zechariah, Jazael, Shemiramoth, and, and you see some other names that are listed there. So you're, li you're introduced to Asaph, you're introduced to Ethan. These two men, uh, we have psalms that were written by them. David wrote the vast majority of the psalms that we have in our scriptures, but these men also, in addition to being singers, they're songwriters, they're, they lead people into worship, and thus they're called uh, worship leaders there. And this is just going to be a joyous procession for five or so miles from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. And these guys are going to lead them in song. Verse 19, Now the singers, Haman, Heman, excuse me, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, they were to sound the bronze cymbals. And it goes on and lists a bunch of names there. It speaks of Chenaniah, who's leader of the Levites in music. He should direct the music, for he understood it. So not only is he... Um, you know, he's got a nice voice or whatever, but he, he knows how to lead the people. He's gifted in that uh, way. Berechiah and Elkanah, they were to be gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Josephat, and Nethanel, and a few other names you see that are listed there. They should blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah, they were to be the gatekeepers for the ark. And one of the things I appreciate, Obed-Edom, now he's a gatekeeper. For three months, the ark was at his house. You know, and it was like his ark. Kind of. You know what I'm saying? And I had the ultimate responsibility for it. And now, sort of, this high prestige place is kind of taken. He just gets to be a gatekeeper there. But I love it. He's like, that's fine. Whatever, Lord, whatever you need. And for this season of my life, you needed me and you put me in a place of prominence or whatever it may be, great. I'll serve you faithfully in that place. And now, you want me to serve in this kind of in the back here and not be seen? That's fine. I'll serve back there. Lord, whatever it is you want me to do. I will do. Obed-Edom, his heart is just simply to serve the Lord. Now, as you continue in verse 25, it said, Now David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands, they went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. 
And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. They acknowledged him with a sacrifice. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. Now the robe of fine linen, as we'll see, we're going to come back to it, um, but that was the, the garb of the priest. And it was very simple. It was almost like, you know, if you watch those old like Charles Dickens type plays or whatever, you know, and, and Scrooge comes out in like his nightgown thing that he wears, you know, this garb thing, um, like long underwear almost. That's sort of what the, the garb of fine linen was. N nothing special about it, just simply a cloth to cover uh, the body here. Uh, and the priests would wear that in their sacrificing. Now, David's not a priest, but he's wearing one as well. So he's sort of like an honorary priest, an honorary worship leader of sorts in this whole process here. Continuing, it said, David wore a linen ephod, so also all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of horn and trumpets and cymbals, and they made loud music on the harps and on the lyres. And so David and the priests of Israel, they transport the Ark of God back to Jerusalem. The presence of God is now front and center in the nation. It is an amazing thing to enjoy the presence of God. And for most of us, I'm sure, you know, that's not constant. It's not 100% of the time where you know, man, I am just in God's presence. Usually it kind of comes and goes. You know, you find a quiet place and you're able to just stop everything and listen. And you're like, Lord, you're here. I know I'm in sort of just the back room of my house, but Lord, you're here in this room with me. And then other times, you know, it could just be something that comes on the radio and God uses that to minister to your heart or it could be sort of just the wind blowing through the trees and you're just sensing, Lord, you just touched my heart just now. You're here. And, and there's something special about being in the presence of God. But you need to notice this. As they're bringing the presence of God, if you will, back to Jerusalem, notice how often they're sacrificing. It doesn't tell us here, but in 2 Samuel 6, it said, I believe it says they took six steps and then they sacrificed. And the, pre the preeminence of the sacrifice as far as uh, the nurturing of the presence of God. We can't enjoy the presence of the Lord until we first sought for Him in and through His redeeming sacrifice. And to say it another way, we must first come to the hill of Calvary. If you think about this road, if you will, this, this kind of this pathway that we're going to walk in our walk with God that's going to take us from here on earth to heaven, well, the gateway of that road for every one of us begins on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It begins at Calvary. And before we will ever be able to enjoy the peace and the presence of God, we must go to the hill. Paul said in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have peace with God through our good works. We don't have peace with God through our good intentions. We don't have peace with God through our contributions. But the only way that we have peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that applies for those that are brand new to the faith and just coming into a relationship with God and those that have been around for a long, long time in the faith. You remember what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? And he doesn't say this, but Paul's words really that are unwritten are there are, duh, that doesn't make any sense. You began in the Spirit, how are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? And yet how often us as Christians, you know, we, we fail, we stumble, and so we try to work our way back so that God will be pleased with us again. Instead of just saying, where's that hill? I've got to make my way back to that hill and start this thing again. 
that it's the sacrifice, the redeeming sacrifice of Christ that allows for us to enjoy the presence of God. And the good news that we are able to share today, and all of us can share this message because it's from the truth of Scripture, the good news that we can share today is that every one of us in this room, we can enjoy the presence and the peace of God in our lives. And so I encourage you. I know that we've been getting lots of visitors that are coming in. People are inviting friends, family members, whatever it may be, and that's great. And perhaps you're sitting here today and you're wondering, what's this hill of Calvary thing that he's talking about? I'm talking about the cross of Jesus. The scripture says that the wages of our sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus went to a cross, a sinless man, to die in place of anyone that would willingly receive that gift, a gift must be received. The person and the work of Christ must be received in your life. There must be an acknowledging, I'm a sinner. But Lord, this guy up front is telling me that you're willing to love me, you're willing to forgive me, and you went to the cross in my place. I accept that. And for those of us that have been in the Lord, maybe this last week, maybe this last month hasn't been so good for you as far as your walk with Christ is concerned. You've sort of been drifting kind of doing things. I can't believe I'm doing this again. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Thinking things, letting your mind go certain places, participating in certain things. And I want to encourage you, don't let the devil deceive you. Don't let that message that you are totally unworthy, you should never even consider returning because Christ won't want to forgive you. You've gone too far. Don't let that seep in. Don't believe it, certainly. But return to the cross. That's where you were washed and cleansed the first time and according to John in his epistle, 1 John, if we confess our sins, the scripture says that God is faithful and just. Why is he faithful? What's he just about? Because Christ was judged for your sin. And because he said he would forgive you if you placed your faith in that Christ. He's faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us from all unrighteousness. That is great news. I'd encourage you to do that. Don't let another week go by. Do it. Make this week different from last. Amen? You agree with that? And give your life to Christ if you haven't. Time's short. Don't waste your life. Don't miss the gift that God has for you. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. If you'll even be alive tomorrow. Respond to the gift of Christ. Scripture says the angels will rejoice. We will rejoice. If you want to do that today, we'll be very excited uh, to introduce you to a step of faith in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Father, I thank you that uh, David uh, didn't fail and that was it, but that he could return. Lord, you could show him a, the more excellent way, so to speak, and that he could again enjoy serving you with the vigor of his heart, the presence of God in his life. He could bring that back to his home and to his nation. Lord, you're so gracious, so merciful, so forgiving. Everything really that we are not at our core, you are at yours. And Father, we delight in who you are. Give us hearts, Lord God, that just uh, completely want you in every aspect of our hearts. Cause our hearts to swell. Minister in us, through us. We ask in Jesus' name.
Come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the waves of His mercy. This deep cry. your heart in the stream of life, let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the waves of His mercy. A deep cries out to listen and sing, we sing. Yeah. 